You're listening to episode 10 of the Ecology Everywhere podcast. I'm your host, Arun Dainandan, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Charles Blazier and Kyle Grant. This week, we're talking about adaptive radiation and humans as a driver of speciation. So this week, we are talking about adaptation and adaptive radiation. But first, we'll talk a little bit about where the vast diversity of species that we find on this planet originate. So the key to the idea of this vast diversity occurring is the idea of reproductive isolation, or the group of mechanisms which prevent two groups of living organisms from breeding with each other. Reproductive isolation can be subdivided into two major groups. Those are prezygotic mechanisms where species physically do not mate or have fertilization occur, such as in species living in different habitats or in species choosing not to mate with one another, and postzygotic mechanisms where fertilization and conception occur, but the embryo either has very low fitness, maybe sterile, so that means they can't have offspring, or the offspring are the, of the new young are sterile themselves. So an example, the last one there are the offspring of donkeys and horses, which we know as mules, which, while they themselves are able to survive, are unable to have viable offspring. Postzygotic mechanisms can occur due to changes in the chromosome number of the offspring, the rearrangement of the chromosomes themselves, Haldane's rule, which means a sex which has only one of each chromosome, such as male humans with their single X and single Y chromosome, compared to females with two X chromosomes, is more susceptible to harmful mutations since they only have one copy of each chromosome. And the Dobzhansky-Muller incompatibility, which is when random mutations in the genes of two different populations that have divided due to some potentially geographic barrier cause the hybrids to not be viable when the populations are mixed again. Now regarding speciation at the landscape level, we can describe three different forms. We have allopatric speciation, which occurs when populations that are geographically isolated from one another um, essentially speciate. Uh, we have peripatric speciation, which occurs when two populations diverge while physically located side by side, uh, caused by a spatial gradient of selective conditions, which we call a cline. Now, it's also important to note that a hybrid zone or a zone between two diverging populations where the individuals are able to mate and produce hybrid offspring is an essential component of peripatric speciation. Lastly, sympatric speciation occurs when populations diverge into new species within the same geographical area. Usually this is due to resource competition, so one example are the African cichlids. Now, variation in the adaptations of populations is critical to the divergence of populations into new species. Some examples of adaptations in plants include photosynthetic and metabolic rates in plants in response to high and low sunlight, protective antifreeze compounds in cold-tolerant species, and differences in the rate of nutrient uptake and water regulation in response to heat. Some examples of adaptations in animals include smaller bodies for better heat regulation, differences in the types of foods that are eaten, differences in nutrient requirements and the ways that they transport oxygen, such as through lungs or gills, and ways to regulate temperature, including ways that regulate the amount of water living, leaving the body. And so with that very quick introduction to how we have this vast diversity of species, I'll give it over to you, Kyle, to, to tell us a little bit about the lemurs of Madagascar. All right, thanks. Uh, so the paper that I'll be presenting uh, today is titled Testing the Adaptive Radiation Hypothesis for the Lemurs of Madagascar. Uh, the author is James P. Herrera, and it's in the Journal of, Royal, of the Royal Society Open Source. Uh, so the paper starts out by discussing what's referred to as the ecological limits hypothesis, which, is essentially, which essentially states that within a geographic area, species diversity is limited by resource availability. Uh, essentially, the availability of resources within a region creates a diversity carrying capacity or a maximum amount of diversity that can be actualized within the region. So if we model uh, ecosystems using this ecological limits hypothesis, as diversity increases and approaches the ecosystem's carrying capacity, speciation, speciation rates begin to decrease and extinction rates increase. Uh, so this sort of dynamic leads to what could be seen as a diversity equilibrium point. These diversity equilibrium points are dynamic and can fluctuate over time as local conditions change. Now, if we look at this in the context of mass extinction and adaptive radiation, species that are able to exploit unique ecological opportunities are able to invade the novel habitat after an ex extinction event and diversify. So this is due to unoccupied niche space and competitive release or reduce competition. 
Speciation and evolutionary rates are predicted to be much higher in lineages that have exploited these kinds of open resources. So the author defines adaptive radiation as having the following properties. One, organisms exploiting new ecological opportunities are predicted to undergo rapid lineage and phenotypic diversification as they fill open adaptive zones. Two, uh, rates of speciation should be highest at the onset of radiation when species are diverging into open niche space. Three, as species accumulate and niche space fills, the ecological limits hypothesis predicts that speciation and phenotypic diversification rates should decelerate as a new equilibrium is reached. And finally, lineages that have evolved via adaptive radiation are predicted to exhibit a high degree of phenotypic divergence. So the author focuses on Madagascar, which has been historically colonized by dispersal, and many uh, of the successful clades on the island exhibit signals of adaptive radiation. One of these groups are lemurs, which are endemic to the island. Currently, lemurs comprise approximately 100 extant species with a degree of variation in body size and dietary preferences. So sister clade of lemurs are the lorises, which are small nocturnal species that feed predominantly on fruit and insects. It's hypothesized that lemurs are derived from a single nocturnal ancestor that dispersed to Madagascar and diversified by adaptive radiation. So the author sets up a, a number of predictions that would support the hypothesis of an adaptive radiation event. Uh, one, the lineage speciation rates uh, would have increased rapidly following the colonization of Madagascar, and speciation rates should slow down as the carrying capacity is approached. Two, speciation rates will be higher in lemurs than their sister clade, lorisiforms. Three, the rate of phenotypic evolution will be initially high, but decline as time approaches the present. Four, if lemurs exhibited adaptive phenotypic and niche divergence, then lemurs should occupy a, a wider breadth of multidimensional ecospace than lorisiforms. To test these predictions, the authors used a comparative phylogenetic approach. Uh, dated phylogenies were inferred based on a combined uh, matrix of four nuclear and two mitochondrial genes, as well as discrete morphological characteristics. And the phylogeny was dated using a fossilized birth death rate model. Speciation and extinction rate dynamics on the tree were assessed using several methods. Uh, shifts in diversification rates across the tree and through time were assessed using Bayesian uh, analysis of macroevolutionary mixtures. Variation in body mass was tested to see uh, if it could be explained by a combined diet and activity pattern niche variable uh, using phylogenetic generalized, generalized least squares regression or uh, what's called PGLS. Uh, and four models of trait evolution were compared. It's the uh, Brownian motion, uh, Pagel's lambda, Ornstein Olenbeck, and uh, Bloomberg's G. Um, so little evidence was found to support the hypothesis that lemur diversification fits the predictions of adaptive radiation. Uh, lemur diversification rates were, however, twice that of risiform rates. There was also no support for the declining speciation or diversification rates that would be expected if an if a equilibrium point were being reached. Lemur body mass evolution exhibited an early burst pattern with high rates of change after the initial um, colonization of Madagascar and reduced rates towards the present. So this is in contrast to lorisiforms, which have maintained uh, relatively constant rates of phenotypic evolution. There was also support for an adaptive relationship between body mass and diet or activity patterns. Uh, dineural lineages evolved towards high body mass optima, while nocturnal lineages evolved towards lower body masses. Species of different dietary groups also differ in their body size, which is expected to be the result of initial differentiation into adaptive zones. The fact that there was no decline in lineage diversification rates may suggest that there are no ecological limits or that lemurs have not yet reached a carrying capacity. There are, however, many factors that can slow down carrying capacity or the, the approach towards carrying capacity. So competition among lemur species for resources may have driven uh, increased diversification, as this could lead to increased niche partitioning, 
For example, multiple sympatric species are known to select different plant parts or leaves uh, within different secondary compound with uh, different secondary compounds. Um, so overall, I thought that uh, the paper was interesting, and it really uh, sort of demonstrates uh, how versatile uh, phylogenetic analysis really can be. Um, so yeah, I'm curious. Uh, what do you what do you guys think of the paper? Uh, I mean, I thought it was a, a pretty well written paper. I mean, it, it really it it took a couple of reads, of course. I mean, it's it's a little bit outside of my area of expertise um, in terms of uh, in terms of the phylogenies, but it uh, it did list and, and write it, like the, the author wrote everything very clearly. Um, in terms of what I um, what I think could have been done better is maybe a bit more information about how the R packages that were used for some of these phylogenies um, were used. Maybe a bit more information, but of course that information is available um, online in the R package itself. Um, but I, what I really, really, really liked about this paper was, in fact, just the fact that um, the the conclusion being that when you look at the the um, the kind of where lemurs stand compared to lorises um, in relation to, to primates as the outgroup, um, I believe he used. The, um, he, if you look at it from a trait-based perspective, there was evidence of adaptive radiation taking place. But if you look at it from a phylogenetic perspective, he found that there was not adaptive radiation taking place, which kind of made me think. I mean, for one, I thought it was amazing just the sheer number of traits that he had quantified. I mean, what, 400 and something different traits? Um, I'm trying to figure out how many, how many different traits someone can look at in a lemur, but I guess there's quite a bit. Um, but I, th- but I thought it was very interesting that when you look at it from a trait-based perspective, <laughs> there could be a, um, you, you could in fact see this, this curve, um, or th- the presence of adaptive radiation, but when you actually look at it from a, from a genetic perspective, when you look at the, the mitochondrial DNA and, and the nuclear DNA, the, um, you in fact don't see evidence of, of adaptive radiation. So I, for me, I think a, a really, really cool point of discussion and a really interesting way that this paper is taken is really where we start to ask, well, which way should be, we be looking at it? Which one matters more, trait-based approaches or phylogenetic-based approaches? Um, but we can get into that a little bit. I'm curious, Charlie, what, uh, what your thoughts were from a, from a population ecologist in training. Yeah, I mean, this paper was, again, very easy to read, in my opinion. Besides the methods part, as you said, it was pretty complicated to follow with the R packages. And also, there's the type of analysis that we're doing. When this is not your field of expertise, it's a bit harder to follow. But as a whole, the paper was very interesting, very easy to understand. And uh, I, I really enjoyed that the, the hypotheses were they were voiced clearly in four clear points at the beginning of the paper, which makes like, makes it clear to know, like, what are the actual objectives of the author? And at the end, of course, they failed to show the objective with the phylogenetic approach, but they still w- managed to show what they wanted to show with um, the trait-based approach uh, on the um, uh, with the size or, of, or the body mass of, of the individuals. Um, now, the question you asked, Arun, um, I, I was about to ask the same question. Which approach is better? Is there a better approach in that situation? Um, I... In my opinion, I think they would almost be complementary. But the only thing with fossils, you might get more information on on the adaptive radiation because this is the phenotype itself that will be selected upon that you can look at. Whereas when you're looking at phylogenetics, more phylogenetics, not everything will will necessarily be selected upon. So you might not get as big as a, of an evidence of what has been really selected upon or how, what has been the the trait that has been competing that that was the, the subject of competition between the individuals. Um, so in my opinion, for this case itself, I think adaptive radiation has been shown just because body mass was probably the competitive factor that made a difference. As an example, between the lemurs that were that became diurnal versus the ones that had to remain nocturnal, uh, because of course uh, it's you get a bit less resources by living at night for different reasons. And yeah, I think that that the the body mass and the trade based approach in this situation is a very good addition to to the model itself. So I'm curious, um, what did you guys think about, uh, like, what, did, what are your thoughts on the ecological limits hypothesis? Do you think that this is something that's, um, that's realistic? I, can we think of any examples where um, we could kind of demonstrate this hypothesis? Because it wasn't, 
you know, from this paper, we didn't really see it, and it's it's an idea that floats around. Um, so I'm just curious if you guys have any examples where um, that have kind of demonstrated this this kind of dynamic. Well, I mean, the idea of having a caring capacity isn't necessarily something new. I imagine in the in the well in the field of population ecology, but yeah, applying this to a uh, to well to diversity itself. Um, I, I yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it's it it assumes automatically that, that there is a static value, right? And and it, and the author does mention it at one point um, that there could be this fluctuating um, fluctuating ecological limit. So I don't know. I don't. I guess it depends on if if we really look at the the system as a as a fixed unit, and also we'd have to look at the and especially in a paper like this, it becomes harder. If we look at the the organism and its descendants as a fixed group, um, and ignore the 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 ecological niche partitioning that takes place. I, I don't know. I mean, can there be a, a perfect example of of a ecological limit um, for well for well, yeah for for species diversity? I don't know, because I think so long as there are resources available, yes, we'll have increased diversification, but there's always going to be different sources of nutrients entering a system, even if that means that um, certain individuals are, are dying. If we see that, um, you know, if we think of it as, as, and I think I've mentioned this in the past, you know, energy building up in a system uh, as it divides amongst different species, let's say. And when when, let's say, one species goes extinct, well, it frees up that energy for other other species to use, and that could be two species, three species, four species. I mean, it, the actual number could be anything. It could be less species, too, of course, but the very fact that it can be fluctuating like that and the fact that we're looking at, at energy um, shifting and moving through these systems, I don't know if we can really say that there is a, a specific limit or a, a carrying capacity for uh, diversification of, of species. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I agree almost... with you on that. Yeah, you can go ahead, Cal, if you want. Oh no, no, want... go ahead, go ahead. Okay, so I mean, I do agree with that. That the niche partitioning question is, you know, it's not because there's a. I don't think an environment can be characterized by the number of niches it has, and that would mean the number of species that can be in an environment. Uh, simply because different species can use the same resource at some point, and the population sizes might just get smaller when there's divergence between two species. Um, and as an example, if you think about the larger body lemurs that disappeared, and that could have had a huge effect on the on the increase in speciation, because who knows how big of a of a niche they were filling or how how abundant they were, the bigger lemurs. And now maybe there's a bunch of smaller lemurs that need a bit less resources to to survive and to persist. So in my opinion, um, the niche itself is important, but I think the population sizes and how big of an impact they had on the environment would be important as well. Their competitive ability um, would have an impact as well, in my opinion. Yeah, like certainly um, competitive interactions are a big part of uh, sort of the niche structuring of an environment, right? And I think something that's that's interesting would be that these kind of dynamics, anytime there's a natural disturbance, you're freeing up, um, you're freeing up free space for this adaptation into that niche right so uh you're basically reshuffling the competitive interactions with uh, uh through um natural disturbances so like arun said it's if it's a very dynamic environment then again the, the ecological limits hypothesis it's kind of I, it's hard at least for me to to wrap my head around how how we could really apply this in an actual setting well, perhaps what you just mentioned, actually, that, that if we look at it from the, the flip side, a very stable environment um, would, would you know, because if we're looking at, at this, I mean, it becomes harder as we look at it from evolutionary time because of these these boom and bust cycles that, that can occur when we're looking at disturbance. But when we're looking at, let's say, um, portions of our planet at a, at a smaller scale, on a smaller time scale, um, and, and in fact, maybe, maybe cases where sympatric speciation is taking place. Um, on these shorter time scales, we can say potentially that some environments are more stable than others. So maybe comparing environments based on their stability might be a way to then actually use the ecological limits hypothesis more as a relative, um, as a relative limit, as opposed to, let's say, an absolute value that we're giving to a given system. 
So maybe that's that's one one area where where the ecological limits hypothesis could be applied um, in 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 looking at at uh, species diversification. Yeah, that's I think that's a really good uh, really great point. Uh, it's it's almost what we saw in the study too. If you think about it, it's after the initial colonization, you get this you could call it a, a radiation event where you get all the speciation occurring, but then relative stability from that point onward, right? So it's, it's, uh, yeah. So you, you could look at that almost as a disturbance when it's entering that new environment. I mean, uh, it's not, but it's, it's, I feel like the dynamic would be very similar. It would be the, the creation of new resources. And, and I think yeah. the, I mean, the author, he, he does touch upon it at one point. I mean, I think he looked at something similar to this um, and, and based on his, his modeling approaches, I think he, his, his finding was that that wasn't the case. Um, when looking at environmental variables, it was, it was an interesting idea because, uh, I mean, it maybe didn't work in this scenario, but I was thinking if it could work in other scenarios, like, say, Darwin's Finches, for example, where you see islands within islands, right? So if we're looking at... at um, East Africa, right, as a, as a source for the, um, the, the proto, you know, the ancestor to these lemurs, um, the, the Larissa form, right, the, 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 the Loris related organism that came across, um, you know, Madagascar served as a, as an island in, in this larger group with, with new resources where it was cut off from other, um, let's say predators, things like that. But then even within Madagascar itself, you know, you had these different pockets, right, where the loris could be but in some areas, but it couldn't in others. And that's where we got this niche partitioning taking place, right? So, so it's kind of like these, these land islands within actual oceanic islands, for example. But, but this could also take place maybe in, in, in a forest, right? If we were to go to the Amazon, we know there is spatial heterogeneity. So if, we're, if we know that there's trees and, and clusters of forests that are different than surround, the surrounding forests, maybe old growth versus new growth, for example, um, perhaps it's possible to see adaptive radiation taking place um, in these gear. And, and in fact, I think that might be an example of, of um, a pear patrick speciation, right? Where it's happening right at a border, but there is a cline of, of different environmental conditions to, um, in order, like that, that's driving that, um, that speciation to occur. So maybe that, that could be something, um, that's causing, um, causing this, this radiation to take place. And maybe it, it is happening in, in lemurs. I mean, even though he, his finding was that it wasn't taking place, the fact that we can see from a trait based approach means that maybe there is something else there. Um, yeah, I guess, I guess the difference though, is the trait based approach is, is not looking at the actual rate of speciation, right? So is that, I think that's how you would, uh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's how you would kind of uh, differentiate between the, the two things. So it's, you know, one is like, okay, well, looking at how speciation rates change, the other is looking at, um, yeah, I, I guess what I'm saying is like, if we're looking at purely adaptation, we're not necessarily, like, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's uh, speciation events occurring. Oh, of course, but we want to look at it over time, right? So I think Charlie mentioned yeah. it earlier. When we're looking at the fossil record, we we can't, you know, really look at the genetics of, of these organisms because they don't, you know, they don't exist anymore. We can infer it based on current populations, um, and maybe you know various museum samples up to a certain point. But when we're looking at at the fossil record, all we can really look at is um, is is a is a morphological feature. So so. Yes, we won't be able to look at, let's say, the... Um, well, you yeah, know, we could still look at things like the diet and activity levels based on certain morphological features like, you know, the, the size of the skull and, and the types of teeth that are present. Um, but, uh, but I mean, that, that's kind of where I was going with, with the trait-based approach because in some, some cases we can't, we can't sample um, the genetic information. Um, so that, that could be a point where these two meet and and of course yeah in, in theory maybe the phylogenetic approach would be the, the better one um or rather the one with the highest resolution but it becomes harder now when we're trying to fit the the fossil record into that equation because we end up getting um maybe these conflicting uh conflicting results now um that reminds me of the conversation we had in the previous episode about the species concept itself right uh, we had problems 
uh, understanding how there was a final genetic species concept that was causing a taxonomic inflation. And that's a bit of the same situation we see here. You know, speciation or adaptive radiation doesn't seem to be happening uh, following the definition. There's not a slowdown in in um, in the speciation rates of lemurs if we follow the phylogenetic approach because we keep discovering new ways of identifying these species. Whereas if we just stick to morphology um, with the trait-based uh, the method that they've been using, then we can see the adaptive radiation. So it just turns out to be the same situation where you can see or you can point out more species using one method compared to the other. And yeah, that's just what I wanted to add. So, yeah, talking about the uh, different ways of looking at species from last week, I think you're bringing up something else that was interesting with the paper. Uh, they actually mentioned how uh, there's been a taxonomic uh, inflation of the number of lemurs that are considered species in the last 20 years. So I think, uh, yeah, it doubled from 50 to 100. Um, and, and they talked a little bit about how that can kind of influence uh, these phylogenetic analyses. So um, kind of an interesting example of what we were talking about last week where, you know, these are really arbitrary lines and the 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 idea of like how many species there are in a group it, it kind of shifts as as time and technology advances would there be a way to correct that to correct for you know the inflation through through time be with our methods the method the more the methods get the you know technological and the more we have ways of identifying species the more we will find species now would there be a way to correct that? Of course, this is a hypothetical question that we don't necessarily know the answer to that. But um, it's always hard to try to compare these these two approaches, and you know we see these different results, but we know exactly why. It's because there are we are, there, are, there are limitations with the morphology with the morphology approach uh, because we cannot see as much, you know. And then with the phylogenetic approach, there's just more we can see, or there there's just more species we can find uh, later on. Well, absolutely, and and I'm I'm also curious in terms of the you know this idea of of this constant splitting, where we're seeing you know over time this increase in in number of species, and yeah, we can say oh there's adaptive radiation taking place because look we found that there's a species, but of course you know that that could be you know a very recent species simply because it's the same species um, as as the other one that we're comparing it to. But they they mentioned something in the paper, kind of touching upon this idea of oversplitting. And when we were looking at the the fossil record, but really the this the this adaptive radiation um, over over these very long periods of time, a lot of the a lot of the species that we had previously, as we as we kind of zoom out on this this evolutionary time scale from you know the Cenozoic era all the way out to much longer periods of time we start to lose a lot of that resolution, right? We start, there, there could very well have been more species at one point than there are now of lemur, but because we can only see the individuals that exist today, combined with the splitting that, that's taking place, we'll, we won't, you know, we, we kind of lose that. We, we, we end up not being able to see whether or not there is in fact this radiation taking place. Um, and I think that's what also they were they were the, the author was bringing up when he was talking about how there's this you know if we look at it from a from a a not over splitting group um, you know we we do see the slowing down um, of of speciation taking place presumably because of the these this uh, ecological limit that's being reached but at the same time it's hard to say well one i guess what the environmental conditions were in the past which i think would be something interesting to to think about um you know that that might affect speciation I and mean, we, we mentioned disturbance but there there's certainly other other types of um other types of events that can that can occur but um but also just in terms of on these larger time scales whether or not we're losing this um you know losing our I don't want to say losing our diversity, but losing our understanding of the the species itself or the the many the, the entire lineage itself. Yeah, I mean it's it's definitely a limitation. I mean the fossil record it's it's pretty uh, 
a pretty fickle thing. It's hard to base uh, studies purely on fossil record. Um, well, that, that kind of ties into this idea of, of um, and, and Kyle, you were mentioning it earlier, but, you know, the, uh, the different equilibria hypotheses, right? The punctuated mm. equilibrium and, and the uh, graduated Right, graduated, gradual equilibrium. Yeah, it's a uh, yeah, gradualism. At gradualism, and you know this idea of punctuated being, you get this explosion of of species, and then it kind of, you know, uh, just kind of trickles off into this very low baseline <laughs> rate of speciation taking place, versus a um, the gradualism being that you have a, a higher level of speciation taking place, but it's more consistent across the board. Um, that being, yeah, that being gradualism. And, um, and I mean, they, they do, they do talk about a little bit about that, right? This idea of, of there being an explosion of diversity at the top. I mean, you mentioned that earlier, Kyle, um, presumably at, at the onset of migration into Madagascar. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but I, I wonder how much of that really, really plays in, in what we see, you know, further down the line. I mean, if there's a certain level of inertia that take, takes place. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's certainly, we can certainly see it in other lineages, right? So it's, I don't think, it's it's definitely a dynamic that you can, that's observable. Um, yeah, the question, I guess, is how it works on a finer scale. So when we're talking about things like, like, uh, like you just mentioned, like an adaptive radiation event from colonization or maybe... Um, a smaller scale disturbance. How does that affect? Um, uh, how does that affect uh, speciation rates? Um, yeah, it'd be, I think it would be interesting to look at on a on a finer scale how those kind of dynamics are working. Because it makes total sense that this would happen, you know, at the onset of colonization that or of migration that the, all these niches would be filled pretty quickly by the the ancestor of the lemurs. Um, and of course, they mentioned in the paper itself that uh, they might, they would did not observe that that um, burst um, in speciation at the beginning, maybe because of a uh, one of these massive extinctions, and this could be explained also by the period at which uh, all this migration happened, which was during the global cooling uh, at the beginning of the Oligocene uh, that they mentioned as well in the paper. So again, we're going back to the environmental conditions, you know, and if we have a way to point out which environmental conditions were important at this point for them when, when they migrated, that would tell us a bit more about um, why we don't observe that burst in in the speciation in the beginning of migration of lemurs. Um, so there's this, th- sorry. Yeah, no, go ahead. Oh, well, I was just going to say that there's this interesting line um, in the in the paper where um, where the author writes, you know, for evolutionary radiation to be considered adaptive, the phenotypic evolutionary dynamics must reflect adaptations to rapidly diverging niches. Um, indeed, phenotypes may preserve the signals of adaptive radiation better than lineage diversification dynamics because of the confounding factors obscuring patterns of diversification. Um, so I, I thought that was an interesting idea, just that this, that in fact, the, the phenotype itself, you know, whether they be, you know, behavior or, um, diet or, or various morphological traits and characteristics can in fact preserve these signals better than the diversification of lineages. And I, and I, I imagine this is, this is kind of touching upon this, this problem with oversplitting and, and kind of what we mentioned earlier on. Um, but, uh. But I mean, if that's the case, can we start defining these species based on behaviors? Because I would imagine, well, looking at activity level, certainly looking at, at diurnal behavior, for example, I mean, that, that, that is, as I mentioned, it's a behavior. Um, but then can we start defining these species or, or based on their behavior? And if so, can we really use that as a, as a form for, for deciding um, whether or not adaptive radiation no, I, well, it took place, but mainly if it's continuing to take place or not. Do you think that there's a limit to the types of traits that we can use? I mean, here they use body mass and, and diet and activity, but um, but where do we draw the line in terms of what behaviors we can use to define species? Yeah, that's a, a good question. I think um, yeah, it's it's hard to say. I mean. Uh, what exa- uh, the question, I guess, is what exactly is the behavior that's leading to 
reproductive isolation between the groups. But these behaviors... No, no, go ahead. I was just quickly going to say these behaviors are inferred because of the phenotype that's been observed. And and these phenotypes are essentially um, diverging in response to the environment or to different pressures that these that the species were facing, you know. So when you have any sort of speciations, because the one one um, group was or one phenotype was dominant over the other, which causes competitive exclusion or competitive release, and that it might be easier to see through a morphological approach and to actually like visually see what the differences are physically speaking and that could lead again to these behaviors that it's easier to draw a line essentially between species in the adaptive radiation uh, mindset oh certainly i mean there's there's this idea i mean it, it kind of touches upon what you were saying earlier with as we increase our our technological resolution you know that the, how how well we can we can measure things based on technologies that we have we can start looking at new ways to split these species. And I think one of the fundamental limits of behavioral ecology for the longest period of time has been um, that it's, it, well, one, it's relied on a lot of fairly archaic techniques at this point, but also that it's it's just, it well, yeah, it hasn't ca- kept up with the times in terms of what technology can do. And we see that changing, I would say, maybe the last 10, 15, maybe 20 years, where you know, there's new ways to to quantify things like movement. There's new ways to quantify um, you know, switches in diets and, and behaviors, you know, based on, on, uh, you know, like circadian rhythms and, and, um, circa rhythms, for example. And, and we can see this, you know, the use of technology can start to look at, you know, these, these behaviors at a finer and finer scale. Um, because in the past, you know, it was, it was very expensive to be tracking a single, you know, let's say one single lemur for days on end, nonstop, capturing as much information as you could on pen and paper about its behavior um, than today when you could be setting up camera traps or even just putting it a you know a, a collar or something a GPS collar that that gives information on its on its movement in three-dimensional space um, and then using something like path segmentation for example to to quantify behavior after the fact um, you know if, if if technology is a limiting factor in that case well then in theory we should be able to get a lot more insight from of the behaviors themselves just by looking at um, or of the species themselves just by looking at the behaviors um, because as you as you mentioned Kyle I mean reproductive isolation is the, is the primary primary driver here of of um, of speciation and, and you know when we're looking at a larger scale is adaptive radiation taking place but behaviors can just as well be a form of of reproductive isolation just purely because one one group does not want to mate with another group for sure and and i mean like you're talking about um looking at distributions of these different behavioral types i mean that's that that would be really interesting if we were looking at it in a sympatric speciation kind of scenario right so it's how much of of this behavior and let's say it's change in diet is leading to um a, a restriction in gene flow between those two behavioral phenotypes just looking at the, the dynamics of how their distributions overlap. And there's the possibility of bottlenecking taking place as well. I mean, in this, this idea, I mean, on a genetic level, you know, we were talking about the dobzhansky muller incompatibility, right, where we have these, these two populations. I, I imagine you must see this in the kangaroos as well, Charlie. I mean, where you have these populations forming, um, let's say there's a single one population and then due to some form of barrier, let's say a, a man-made road, a fence, um, or, or some other change in the environment, these populations are split. And then just purely because of genetic drift, we get these different populations, you know, that on the genetic level it changes. And so, you know, when they come to, to meet, I mean, maybe not in kangaroos, but it happens, you know, in other species, plants, for example, they, they're unable to, to hybridize anymore simply because, um, they've, they, a, a key component of their genetics that allowed them to hybridize um, has been changed. But one could imagine this could happen for behaviors as well. I mean, if we look within a city context, we, we see, or even on, on campus, right, we see these black squirrels you know, running around campus. Um, and they're pretty unique to university campuses. In the U.S., in certain, certain universities, they have pure white squirrels. And now, 
Interestingly enough, if you look at some of these squirrels, we start to see these hybrids forming of the, between these squirrels. And I don't actually know if anyone's really looked into it, um, but where we see these half black, half brown squirrels running around campus. Um, and, you know, one, one can imagine, you know, th- these guys are hybridizing, but we could be witnessing speciation, t- speciation taking place on our campus. Um, because maybe while, while there is a case of these brown and these black squirrels mating, it's also possible that over time, they just won't recognize each other. They might communicate very differently. Uh, a good example, I think, would be squirrels in a city versus squirrels in a forest. Because squirrels in a city primarily communicate using visual communication, using their tails, because the city ambient noise is so high that they can't actually call to each other. Whereas squirrels in the forests will communicate using, using vocalization because... It's, it travels, the, the, the sound travels a lot further, and you don't have to be between, you don't have to be able to see the other individual, and that's also useful when there's a lot of foliage present. Um, so now if we were to take a squirrel from a forest and a squirrel from a city, there's a good chance they can't communicate with each other. It's like they're speaking two different languages. Um, now whether or not they can, they can mate and produce offspring, that's, that's a question. Uh, one could get really, you know, romantic with this and talk about the language of love and it's a universal language, um, between <laughs> squirrels without getting too, too cheesy. But, um, but, but, you know, th- there's, there's these examples taking place where behaviors, even maybe in two populations right next to each other, um, are leading to this reproductive isolation. So I don't know. I, I, you know, if that's the case, can we say that's a different species? Because we, we do say that that's the case sometimes with um, with flowers. When you have a, a species, a single species of, of plant in in, a, in the same field, but the plant might be, you know, the, the flowering might be happening earlier in one patch versus another patch. And so they'll never reproduce, right? Um, but, I mean, if we force the reproduction, they can. So do we call that... You know, one species, or do we say that normally we're saying that speciation is occurring, you know, because over time they'll separate. Um, but this could happen in mammals as well. So I wonder if this can happen in lemurs or in kangaroos, Charlie? I mean, kangaroos, I uh, would not be able to tell you, honestly, just because uh, um, uh, there are a few species of kangaroos, and and they, I mean, they're pretty mobile, as you may know, these uh, so. There's there's not not so many big barriers that could be applied for such a large mammal that can cross roads on a daily basis, especially for for male kangaroos that will just migrate. The, um, after breeding season, they'll just go somewhere else, and it could be completely random. Could be the the same place they go every year. But yeah, from your example with the squirrels, I, uh, that's a very interesting point you bring. Uh, simply because the the um, just because of human disturbances. Uh, you might we might witness speciation or yeah not squirrels on campus but the squirrels between cities and forests um now the question is do we could we consider them different species if they don't reproduce unless we force them to um in my opinion i think it's a matter of opinion of course but i think i think so simply because without any outside influence these species will never uh, breed again because they're a behavioral barrier uh, reproductive barrier, barrier, and for that reason, these species can only uh, di- diverge through time. There's no other reason that these species could go back to each other unless uh, the the disturb- disturbance, which is the city the city, the city ambient noise, the, disappears from one day to the next. Then I don't think there's any chance for these species to go back together. It's like seeing the city noise as a barrier itself, and if it goes away, these species are either uh, too far away, behaviorally speaking, to go back together. Or it's, if it's not too late, then they could mix back again and create hybrids and at some point mix and make a, a one species again. So again, it's, it really depends on, on what concept we're looking at, uh, species concept we're looking at, I mean, and also how how long it's been since the splitting or since the barrier has been made. Uh, and I think it's, it's also important to note that... Um... In order for that to occur, you'd assume that there's an element of genetic inheritance in these behaviors, and it's not just learning. Because um, if it's just learning, we could remove that. Um, assuming it's not constant, if you remove that, um, that I guess, selection regime, you could look at it as uh, of the urban environment, uh, then the behavior could resume, uh, could go back to its normal state afterwards. Or the next generation will have uh, a quote-unquote norm, normal behavior. 
Now it reminds us about um, bird species that will have different calls um, or bird populations that might have different calls. They might just not reproduce. Uh, even if they're uh, compatible, um, they will never reproduce because they have different calls and the call is learned through their parents. So the behavior in this case would be more of a cultural transmission thing than a genetic thing or an environment-based thing. Um, right. So that situation, even if it's not genetic, it could still lead to some sort of speciation or still lead to some sort of behavioral barrier that would make right. these two groups never reproduce. Yeah, that's a that's a really great point because it's you could assume, say, you remove the stimulus. Well, if that behavior is now linked to, yeah, increased um, increased fitness, then that could be a cultural uh, behavior that's that persists in that that um, that population, right? So it's yeah, it's interesting idea. So what do we think? I mean, this idea of of using anthropogenic disturbance as a uh, a driver of speciation do we think that i guess one has enough to, i mean well, actually no well we have seen adaptive divergence in, in the sense that we've seen those moths the peppered moths and how they change colors based on the uh, the amount of um amount of pollution that was happening in the industrial area where what was it the the they're normally white but then because the trees are being covered in in the soot from burning coal the um, essentially the population became black simply because the white ones were were being eaten. The black ones were better camouflaged. Um, but then over time, we were seeing a shift back as they started putting more. You know, they, they basically stopped burning coal to the same extent, and you know the trees were no longer covered, and we saw the shift to going back towards the the white. Um, now, assuming that there was some form of a a, um, a reproductive um, isolation that took place between these moths based on colors. One could say that then we did get speciation, or we would, we could get speciation occurring. Um, it, it's this kind of idea of the world after us, right? I mean, what what effect do you do you guys think that humans have left on this planet that we could see as a as a source of of um, or rather a a well a disturbance, but also just a, a driver of adaptive radiation? I mean, there's I mean sound, for example, when we're looking at the the evolution of these cultures amongst crows for example and and other bird species um noise when we're looking at the way that that um squirrels are communicating with one another but there there certainly must be other um other anthropogenic factors at at play here especially within cities so what do you guys what i mean does anything else come to mind in terms of uh anthropogenic disturbances well a big one that comes to mind for me would be um that a lot of these species are you're actually selecting for bold individuals because they're the ones who are going to, I guess, do best in these environments. I mean, I guess shy individuals could as well, but I think in either case, you you might see very um, a big shift in sort of the, I guess you could, you, you're the behavior guy. I don't know what to be called, but maybe like the um, the personality of individuals in the environment. Yeah, well, yeah, the personality being the the correlated suite of behavioral traits, um, yes, and and yes, absolutely, there would certainly be this this difference. We see this actually with fish um, when uh, we, we've we've shown that in fact fishing has led to um, shyer fish perpetuating in a population because the bolder fish are the ones that go for the bait and they're the ones that you know end up getting eaten um, or winding up on on the the deck of a, a ship because and. They themselves don't don't have any any progeny, so we know that we are in fact changing the personality of fish in the ocean because we're we're fishing out the brave bold ones. Um, now the question is whether or not that could lead to long term um, differences, right? I mean, I guess it comes down to the plasticity of the individual species too, um, and the individuals themselves, whether or not they can switch between that shy bold, for example, or or um, you know the aggressive. Um, calm kind of dynamics, um, but yeah, I, I mean, yeah, definitely, I agree. Definitely, there's this this idea of of selecting for certain personality types. I mean, bolder individuals would do better in a city, right? I mean, if a pigeon was afraid every time there was a person, I mean, how much food is that yeah. pigeon going to get versus one that just walks on your shoe, <laughs> you know, expecting yeah, yeah, uh, sure. expecting handouts? Um, yeah. So I guess there is this differential selection where we can have a single a single force, um, mainly, namely us, as a, as a species, humans, um, <laughs> being being kind of uh, 
the driver for for this almost unequal distribution of traits, so shy traits and and bold traits, depending on the species, and um, yeah, I mean I perhaps wonder. that's how domestication started too, right? Yeah, for sure. It's the same thing, right? Bold individuals. If we're thinking of, let's say, wolves, it's the earliest wolves were bold enough to go near like human camps, like maybe forage in like um, I don't know, like uh, like say like if there was like a dump next to the the camp, like shy individuals aren't going to try and like take that risk. Yeah, we call so those cats. A, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, there's there's certainly an element there where it, it, it can really initiate that um, that that kind of interaction with humans. And what would you think about seagulls uh, and city goals? Um, we we well, like there there must be a huge difference between uh, the two populations now, or the, I don't know if they're called species nowadays, but um, you know the the food resources, the amount like the amount of work required to to survive as a city goal might be much lower than uh, what it is for a seagull, you know, and the selection process in that situation might change also the mate choice um, and sexual selection processes. So do you, do you have any idea or anything that comes to mind when you think about um, sexual selection or fitness or changes in fitness because of, of, um, of the city disturbance that we, that we kind of bring in, you know, the accessibility, the accessibility to food and, maybe the lack of selection for certain species that do adapt very well to our environment that are very opportunistic as an example. Yeah, that's a good point actually with the, with the gulls. Um, I mean, I don't know if, if you've had the same experience as, as I have, but I've noticed that, that gulls that well, actual sea gulls, the ones that we find near the, the ocean, they tend to be much shyer compared to the ones that we find in the city. But not only that, but the ones that make their way further inland, they tend to be, morphologically distinct as well they're much smaller mm -hmm. they're able yeah. to i guess move through more more denser environments possibly because you know they don't need to be flying such large distances for food um so so there might be an, an element of i mean there certainly is an element of selection there on size um sexual selection i'm not sure we that we'd have to see what what female um or maybe male i don't know who, who's selecting in, in gulls but presumably female gulls i think most most birds it's usually the females selecting the males um the um we have to see what they find attractive i guess but the um but yeah i mean that's a that's a good point with the with the gulls with species that we can see in both wild contexts as well as um as these urban contexts there could be a you know a lot of research that could be done looking into the um looking into these differences because it, it is manifesting itself in a morphological way as well. So maybe that behavior mm -hmm. leads to these morphological differences. So that's a good point. Yeah. Um, and I think a good way to look at it would be the effects of captive breeding. It's almost, almost synonymous. It's, it's, you know, you have these altered selection pressures, relaxed selection pressures that are leading to, um, you know, selection for genotypes that may not actually do very well in, the natural environment, but do extremely well in a captive breeding situation. Um, so it'd be interesting to see like these populations we're talking about in these urban environments, um, after however many generations there, how well do they actually do if they're, you know, if they move back into a natural setting? So are we selecting for genotypes that are, you know, less effective or, or less fit in their own natural setting? Um, like we know in, in captive breeding environments that that kind of thing can happen over just a few generations. So, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if these, um, if these sort of small populations are, you know, very, very much, uh, not adapted to their original environment anymore. I totally agree with you on that, uh, simply because, okay, you can't fish in the hatcheries, so we're trying to to reintroduce them in the environment they are initially from and they aren't, they don't, they won't survive. You know, you can put thousands of them in one river and they will not survive because they either will get eaten or they don't know how to get their food. And another, another example, um, it's think about the seagulls, um, or the city eagles and humans dis disappearing tomorrow, humans and everything we've brought into the planet disappearing tomorrow morning. And then they have to go back to, 
finding their food. It would be the same thing. They will have no means of finding their own food. They will have no means to fly such longer distances to get what what they need. Um, in certain situations, that could lead to almost crashes in the whole species in the sense like if you talk about salmons and you have a population of 50 or 100 salmons and you add, I don't know, 30,000 salmon in the same waterway, that's, that situation could be that, you know, there's so many of them that are dying and then there's reproduction happening with some salmons that are not fit. And that could actually lead to some clashes in a species because we've added so many unfit individuals to a, to a population that was, yes, uh, small, but that was at least fit for its environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The hybridization is a really good point. Certainly, when we when we look at at humans as a driver of adaptive radiation, I mean, we I guess we sometimes think that everything that we've done is destructive, but we must have certainly created entire new species at this point. Um, or I guess that that could be the matter a matter of contention is are we going to call these new species? But with the with the sheer number of gulls on this planet that we see living in in proximity to humans and even you know individual species like raccoons and skunks. I mean you know here in North America and 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 groundhogs and and I think in Europe you know the badgers. I mean we're seeing these these whole I mean these the populations of these species is highly reliant on on humans at this point. Um, and there was this interesting, interesting paper that I'd read, which kind of relates this this behavior genetic selection idea, and I think this could this could lead to larger you know questions on whether or not we can get a species. And this this paper looked at badgers. It looked at European badgers. So you know the really cute ones, not the ones that look like they're going to tear your face off and you know take twenty bucks from your wallet kind of thing um, that we here have here in, in North America, <laughs> but the um, the cute fluffy ones in in uh, the UK. And what they what they did was they they um, they were modeling this 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 badger's population um, on uh, essentially based on a bunch of climatic variables. And they wanted to look at where this this badger or these badgers moved and and what effect this had on you know the environment had on their movement, but also on their survival and their fitness. And so so this interesting idea, the actual, the actual environmental variables didn't matter too much. In short, essentially. Uh, they were looked at temperature and humidity and, and temperature. If temperature increased, it went one way. If humidity increased, it went the other way. So they were kind of in this constant flux between, you know, moisture and heat um, for their population size. But they found that when the population sizes increased, they would get more collisions um, because most of the deaths on of, of wildlife on the roads in, in this area are due to are, are badgers, and, and it's due to the roadside or, or collisions, road collisions. Um, and so it got me thinking that, in fact, if we're looking, let's say we have an environmental variable, in this case our humidity and temperature. This affects the population of the, of the badgers in the sense that it causes the individuals to increase their movement, right? So they tend to forage more. So they actually end up getting bigger, and they're much more successful in terms of reproducing because they're bigger. Um, and so when they're bigger, they now leave more progeny simply because that's... That's generally is what happens. They're more successful. They're, they live longer and they're able to have more young. When they have more young, the, po- the population is now increasing overall and all these guys are moving about. And so we see an increase in these roadside collisions. Um, and what I thought was interesting is that the environment is mediating the, or modulating rather the behavior of the, of the organism, that behavioral change, right, which is leading, is leading to increased foraging and that increased foraging is leading to higher reproductive success. And now that we have more, more badgers in the area, more getting hit. And so that we end up actually selecting for badgers that are actually moving less in theory, right? So there's this, this environment is driving the behavior, which is changes genetics which is then causing collisions with humans, which is then driving the behavior back the other way. So I found this a very interesting kind of way of looking at this, uh, at the role of humans, because we are a force that's keeping things, you know, in check in a way. And getting back to the lemur paper, um, they talk about this idea of carnivores, right? Um, Of controlling these populations and, and keeping this baseline speciation going. Essentially, I guess, preventing this energy from being caught up in just a single species. It allows for this, this maintenance of these different species. I think with the lemurs, they, he mentioned that it, it, this might not actually be the case, but he does hypothesize that during the initial migration to Madagascar, there was a lot of other species that could have, could have migrated as well. Various types of predatory birds, for example. Um, And so, 
when we're looking at the these kind of this, and, and they were saying that essentially with these predatory birds, they were able to keep the the loris, you know, that proto loris, proto lemur thing at a more controlled level. But this also allowed for a much um, faster radiation taking place, adaptive radiation taking place, the rate of adaptive radiation rather. So now. Could we see humans playing that role, say, in these roadside collisions in, in increasing, not just creating these new environments with the noise, for example, and lights, you know, different types of pollution, but also, in fact, actually selecting for them, just like the fishing example um, from earlier. Yeah, I mean, they, they definitely could be selecting for them. Um, I don't think we see uh, the behavior manifest in, in the genetics. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think like humans are, we, we have to see ourselves as a force of selection and the environmental factor that plays a huge role now, because as you're saying, Arun, we, we will create these new phenotypes, um, in terms of behavior because of all the resources that are available in the city as an, as an example. And then we will apply a different force of selection from different, like a different impact that we have in the, on the same species. And that's that's something we have to keep in like keep into keep in the, into account when we when we look at uh, diversity and I think we are one of these forces that just like carnivores that were hypothesized to be to have an impact in keeping the adaptive radiation in check. I think we can see ourselves as some sort as some sort some sort of some of a force that has the same impact on different species we are in contact with, or we might not even be in contact with, and we still cause these differences just because of the pollution or, or any other factor that goes beyond just our presence in one environment. Yeah. And I think it, when we're thinking of this whole dynamic, it's, it's not, it's not really uh, an adaptive radiation that we're seeing. It's more selective filtering. So it's the vast majority of species that can actually adapt to these environments is extremely small. If we're looking at the overall diversity um so yeah it's 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 kind of in a way i mean it's 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 over so you you mentioned the carnivores this is the same thing but in a much more intense case where we're actually diminishing the amount of species that are able to persist and so the the impacts on adaptive radiation if we were to say move move forward uh, you know a few million years or more than a few million years can we see this signal as as the author mentions in the phenotype can we see that 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 evolutionary history due to this selection pressure um, when we look back let's say we look at the traits that exist for the badger example let's say we look at the badgers will we be able to see that in the phenotype of the badgers and be able to say you know 500 million years ago, okay, maybe not that far, but 50 million years ago, humans were causing an issue here. Can we, see, do, you, do you guys think that we'll be able to see that signal or whoever is looking back, you know, at, at the things that we've done <laughs> at that point? I, I want to say no, because I feel like it's, it's such a, a specific case, uh, like a case by case basis. You know, the, the selection pressures, they differ depending on what species we're talking about. So seeing a sort of trend across species that contact humans uh, to me it's uh yeah I, I can't really think of of some way of actually differentiating human contact from any other uh selective pressure could we talk about um old cities let's say we're talking about 50 million years from now and you can still see remains of old cities here and um you can see fossils of different species that that ended up being much bigger in occupied areas compared to other areas that were not as occupied by humans. That could be a, some sort of, you know, uh, of a way to to differentiate one group compared to, to the other group. And, and who knows, 50 million years from now, they might consider these two different group species just because of their size or their morphology. Yeah, for sure. I think I think so. So, like, that that's a case where you could actually kind of uh, parse out how uh, the environment that that urban environment is actually affecting the species, but in the case of say badgers, I don't know, I don't know how easy it would it would be to see that kind of evidence. Well, I think that's that's something we're going to have to uh, 
have to think about as we as we continue to develop the world around us and perhaps science fiction writers can can get on this because I want to know what happens to the badgers in the future um, and the lemurs of course um, in terms of, of what are these human impacts on these species are we affecting radiation adaptive radiation will we see more species in the future because of our actions or will we be seeing less because certainly you know we've we've increased the background extinction rate you know, I think a thousand times more than what it should be or what we normally look at or consider to be the, the background extinction rate of, of you know, planet Earth. Um, but maybe there is hope in the sense that we might not be able to see it, but we might be the, the driving force, the disturbance that this planet needed to see uh, the, uh, <laughs> the generation of, of a whole swath of different creatures that we can't even imagine today. I mean, I'm, I'm all for seeing giant lemurs again. So with that, I think we're we're rounding off the hour. I don't know if you guys have uh, what your what are your final comments or thoughts on on this paper and and uh, Charlie. Actually, I'll start with you. Oh, um, yeah. So that was, you know, this this conversation became really interesting very quickly. Um, again, I found the paper real interesting, not for the methods part because it was pretty hard to follow, but it does open up on many questions. And when we bring up the human impact, the human driving force, as you said, uh, Arun, I think it, it does open our eyes on maybe some sort of selective pressures or some sort of, of driving forces that were present at that time in Madagascar that we cannot necessarily put a finger on right now, but that probably still had an impact on the, the, the dynamics of diversification. And we will never be able to answer every question about what truly happened uh, 50 million years ago, as an example. But we have to be aware that there are lots of environmental factors that have to be taken into account for to to understand what were the true dynamics of each of these uh, species and how they species in the future in the past.